This episode includes discussions of depression, anxiety, and suicide. As a child, I was fascinated by mysterious characters with ambiguous moral intentions. One of the best examples of this was the professional wrestler Sting in the mid-90s. He morphed from a rambunctious and flamboyant tag-teaming champion to a dark and brooding man of few words over the course of just a few months right before my eyes. He traded his neon-colorful, often-changing partial face paint for a black-and-white full mask reminiscent of the protagonist in the early 90s film The Crow. Eventually, after being manipulated with lies and deceit by a new band of 'er ne'er-do-wells called the New World Order, or NWO, Sting publicly stated in the middle of the ring that he was so tired of having his character and integrity questioned that he was officially putting everyone on notice and that no one should take his loyalties for granted. I was six or seven years old and this shook me. I was already a pretty big fan of Sting at the time and I was invested in his resistance to the NWO. Without him, would they be left to run roughshod over world championship wrestling? Sting disappeared for a while and the NWO began using an imposter to wrestle in his image, taunting him and his fans like myself. Finally, one day while an imposter Sting was in the middle of a match, the real Sting appeared wearing a trench coat and his new crow gimmick holding a black baseball bat. He entered the ring and made quick work of the imposter. The NWO attempted to appeal to this new, scarier Sting and asked him to join them. He responded, The only thing that's for sure about Sting is that nothing's for sure. With that, he left his allegiances up to debate. He walked out of the arena, and he became my favorite wrestler of all time. Sting wouldn't speak again on microphone for over a year. I was hooked. Over that year, Sting would occasionally appear in the ring in the same manner and silently attempt to provoke a wrestler into attacking him. Once he pushed the wrestler too far, he would give that wrestler his bat and turn around, offering the wrestler a free shot. When the wrestler refused, Sting would acknowledge the refusal and leave. Then things started to change. Sting wasn't neutral anymore. Now he would unexpectedly intervene while the NWO was bullying another wrestler and defend him. He became this silent protector that wrestling needed but hadn't asked him to be. Almost all my fondest memories of being a young fan of professional wrestling include this era of Sting. Another one of my favorite forms of entertainment during this period of my life was the TV show The Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Early in the Power Rangers franchise, the villain Rita Repulsa uses her magic to possess one of the Power Rangers' peers, Tommy Oliver, and make him fight against the Rangers. He becomes the Green Ranger and is the Power Rangers' most difficult foe. The Green Ranger even destroys the Power Rangers' greatest weapon, the Megazord, and begins to wreak havoc on Angel Grove. The Rangers end up getting the Megazord back, defeating the Green Ranger, and severing Rita's power over Tommy. Tommy goes on to use the Green Ranger's power to help the Power Rangers, often being the superpower that allows the Power Rangers to overcome a seemingly invincible enemy. But it becomes a running theme throughout the show that Rita is trying to reestablish her power over Tommy to use him against his team, making his allegiance to that team always feel a little precarious. Over the next few seasons, Tommy's allegiances are questioned often. There are times where there's a fake Green Ranger and it's hard for the Rangers to tell the difference between their friend and this imposter. Soon, a mysterious White Ranger begins to appear in defense of the Rangers. Throughout all this, the Green and White Rangers are my unquestioned favorite, which isn't a surprise. He was the greatest Power Ranger ever. He was lots of kids' favorite. But much like was the case with Sting, there was something about a character who seemingly has the power to turn the tides for good or evil, not being transparent about which way he's leaning, that transfixed me. 
Over a decade later, I was sleeping in my bed when I got a phone call from my mother. I don't know if it was the unusually late hour, the tone of her voice, or what, but I had an intuition that I remember to be immediate about why she was calling me. She told me that my father was dead. I don't remember much about what was said during that call. I remember offering her consolation, hanging up, and going back to sleep. My personal reaction to my dad's death was pretty subdued, which made sense to me. For all intents and purposes, my father had been estranged for five years at that point. My parents were divorced and he lived in Haiti. Even when he was still around, we didn't have an especially close relationship. Of course, I was sad about his passing, don't get me wrong. We had recently been talking a bit more and I had hopes that we could reconnect at some point and start a relationship, but he was pretty unreliable in his communications with me, so my expectations were very low. Keeping my expectations low and keeping my emotions controlled was something I had a lot of experience at while I was growing up, so not having an intense emotional reaction to him dying seemed pretty on brand to me. Everybody dies after all. Then, about six months later, I stopped sleeping. I've always had trouble sleeping. I had nightmares and night terrors for much of my childhood, but this was different. Taking a long time to fall asleep, having trouble staying asleep, and pulling the occasional all-nighter was normal for me, but only sleeping one or two nights a week wasn't, and that's what started happening. I was still in the first year or so of living with roommates, so I kind of chalked it up to having bad sleeping habits. It was confusing and irritating, but I figured it would pass. Then the anxiety and panic attacks started. I would try to fall asleep, and then I would get anxious about whether I could fall asleep, and then I'd start shaking uncontrollably and have a panic attack. At first, I basically tried to just white-knuckle it. I would keep trying to sleep and maybe even doze off from time to time until it was morning. The longer this went on, the worse the intrusive thoughts got. Thoughts about mortality and the futility of life, but in a really conceptual way. Not the futility of my life personally, but like life in general. Then it wasn't just when I was trying to sleep that I would have an attack. It was during the day too. Any kind of stimuli could trigger me. I became terrified of these thoughts. Music, movies, fast movements, even the wrong topic being mentioned in conversation, and the thoughts could start. I specifically remember being in a class about ancient cities, and the professor mentioned that no civilization lasts forever, which was enough to have me in the bathroom having a panic attack until I was throwing up. I was also taking a philosophy class at the time about existentialism. Not exactly the best subject for someone experiencing an anxiety disorder where the primary trigger is the idea of mortality, but as weird as it might sound, I kind of thought they were related. I thought maybe these anxiety attacks about dying were about this class I was taking. It's probably obvious to you because of how I'm telling the story, but I had no idea why any of this was happening. It was completely new to me, the source was a mystery, taking a class about existentialism and freaking out about dying probably had something to do with each other, right? But I liked and trusted the professor, and I figured since he taught the subject, maybe he had experienced similar struggles with it. Also, there were very few adults in my life that I trusted with this kind of thing back then. I joined his office hours and told him about my situation. After I was done telling him what was going on, the first thing he asked me in an extremely serious tone was, are you thinking about harming yourself? He told me that he wasn't judging me and he didn't want to offend me, but it was very important to be honest with me about whether I was. I told him I wasn't, which was true, and we had a productive conversation about the issue. He told me about similar issues he had dealt with in the past, and at the end he told me that talk therapy could be a useful tool for me, and he reiterated that I should not keep it to myself if I ever found myself having thoughts that could be harmful to myself. He said he believed me when I said I wasn't having them, but he said that didn't mean they wouldn't happen in the future. I thanked him and I took his advice to heart. The problem was I didn't know the first thing about how to get therapy. I didn't have health insurance, I hadn't for years, I didn't have a doctor, how the hell was I supposed to get therapy? 
I found our conversation to be helpful though, and I thought many of the things we talked about could help me start to get on top of this issue, so I didn't pursue therapy any further. I was incorrect though, it didn't get better. If anything, it got worse. Now, I don't know if what was going on in my head ever amounted to ideation, but I do know that there was a point when, while I wasn't seriously contemplating suicide, I did find myself with a new understanding of why some people do it. I distinctively remember thinking to myself, if I'm going to be like this forever, I don't know if it's worth it. I consider myself exceedingly lucky, because for whatever reason, I knew that I had just crossed a line. I knew that that thought was dangerous, and I took it seriously. I immediately went to my computer and started trying to figure out how I could find professional help. I found myself on a website where you could chat with mental health professionals, and I managed to get into a chat room with one. This was over a decade ago, so these services weren't as common as they are today. I told them my situation, and they asked whether I had experienced any major life events in the last year. I told them I had moved out of my mom's house and my father had died. I know it's hard to believe, but up until this point, I truly hadn't considered that my father's death was connected to the panic attacks. Why would it be? It had happened six months prior, it didn't bother me that much, and it made sense that it didn't bother me that much. We barely knew each other. The person on the other end of the chat told me that my college more than likely offered mental health services to their students that were designed to assist in these kinds of situations. I looked into it, and they were right. My college had a mental health center that I contacted. They discussed my symptoms with me, and I guess they accurately assessed the severity because I had an appointment in a matter of days. It was only a couple minutes into my first ever counseling session that she started talking to me about my father and I was a sobbing mess. See, I had always thought I wasn't a very emotional person. Actually, it's probably more accurate to say that I thought I processed emotions in a different way than other people. Whereas other people were very, well, emotional about their feelings, I worked through them rationally. I'm sure I'm not the first person you've heard talk about themselves in this way. Well, I was wrong. It wasn't that I was processing them differently, it was that I just wasn't processing them at all. I didn't really know how to. There are plenty of reasons for that, and maybe I'll talk about them more in the future, but when I think back to why I liked characters like Sting and the Green Ranger so much, I think part of it was because I thought they were allowed to be heroes on their own terms. The ambiguity around their intentions gave them distance from the people they wanted to help and protect. Enough distance that no one could ever truly be reliant on them. Without that distance, they would have to offer the vulnerability that comes with being relied on. That ambiguity shielded them from expectations, and I found comfort in that. It was attractive to me. But what I learned later is that shield comes with a price. The price of thinking you're actually better off alone. Which leaves you vulnerable in all kinds of other ways. More dangerous ways. Jason David Frank, the actor who played Tommy Oliver, the Green Ranger himself, took his own life this past weekend. I want to reiterate, I got lucky. I noticed the path I was going down, I was able to get help, and that help worked. I still struggle with mental health plenty, but thankfully it's never gotten that bad again, and frankly it shouldn't have had to get that bad for me to get help in the first place. I know other people aren't so lucky. I know other people are fighting these battles right now. These mental health crises don't have to be our end. If you're having a hard time, don't go it alone. If you're worried about the thoughts you're having, call 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. It's easier than we would like to admit to think that we're beyond help or that we're not worth helping. But that isn't the truth, it's a symptom. When I was at the height of my anxiety disorder, I came across a New York Times video about a teacher that has stuck with me ever since. In it, the teacher says that the meaning of life, something I was really struggling to come to terms with at the time, is that people love you. People love you too. You might not feel like that's true, but it is. Hell, the reason you think that might just be because the people who love you haven't met you yet. Don't take away their opportunity to.